Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss hospice and palliative care. With me to discuss the topic is the former longtime medical director of a Chicago hospice, Dr. Bruce Doblin. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. So, as always, let me begin uh, briefly with some uh, background. While the practice of end-of-life care or hospice care goes back many centuries, it did not develop substantially in the U.S. until the 1970s. Hospice became a Medicare benefit in 1982. It's a Medicaid benefit in all states but one and covered widely by private insurers. Because hospice patients are terminally ill, the goal of hospice is not curative but palliative care or care that provides symptom relief, particularly relief from pain. Hospice care is considered idealized patient-centered care because beyond addressing the patient's physical symptoms, hospice care delivered by an interdisciplinary team of providers also address the patient's social, emotional, and spiritual needs, as well as the immediate family's grief and bereavement. So with that, I'll note Dr. Doblin's bio is, of course, as always, posted on the podcast website. So with that as brief introduction, uh, let me begin, Bruce, with... Uh, possibly the most obvious question, why did you become a hospice physician? Well, early in my training, after the first several years in private practice, I realized that hospice was something I had not been exposed to as a, as a resident in my training. Um, and it seemed to me like something that I wanted to have available to the patients in my practice. And a small hospice was starting up in the area, and I volunteered to be their first medical director. So I learned hospice on the job, like I think most early hospice providers did back then, about 20, 25 years ago. Okay. Um, next possibly obvious is uh, what attributes make for a good hospice or palliative care provider, both at the physician level and, if you could comment as well, at the organizational level? Well, you know, you'll find that hospice, uh, hospice physicians come from every possible branch of medicine. Uh, some of them are surgeons, some of them are internists, some of them are specialists in various fields. I think what makes a good hospice physician is somebody who's really willing to spend time with patients and families and listen. I think it's an old-fashioned approach to medicine that many physicians in their busy days and their busy schedules are just not accustomed to. It's not a particularly efficient process, but I think it's a particularly effective one. So I think you need to be willing to sit and listen to patients around a kitchen table um, and to understand that the patient has a family and loved ones that are also part of the process. And one of the things that always impressed me from the early days of hospice is that the unit of care is not just the patient. So in my private practice, when I am in a room with a patient, that's the only person that I am concerned about. Um, hospice is committed to the unit of care being the patient and the family and the circle of loved ones. So the hospice physician comes with that background that we're not just providing care to the hospice patients, but we're making sure that everybody involved in that patient's life and ultimately involved in that patient's death is a part of that process and is brought in a way that they're comfortable with. And the other thing that always impressed me about hospice was that uh, we're required to actually stay in touch with family members uh, up to a year after the death and provide grief, support, and bereavement. And I think that that's something that really isn't true in the traditional healthcare world. Mm -hmm. the, the, the classic um, issue frequently brought up for hospice physicians is how do they deal or not with the fact that 
this is palliative, not curative, and that the physician and the other uh, caregivers have to accept the fact that the patient is terminal and they will they'll not be cured. Well, you know, we struggle with that. Um, lots of patients enter hospice with hesitations, and right now, unfortunately, the term hospice is almost synonymous with death. And we spend a lot of time with new patients and families explaining to them that we're actually bringing additional services and knowledge to their care. And what's interesting is the studies show that after the first week or so in hospice, patients actually are better managed, their symptoms are better, their quality of life is improved. Um, but we need to sort of get them over that psychological hump. And that's one of the things that, that I, I think hospice does well. Yes, in fact, paradoxically, some studies show that uh, patients in hospice actually live longer well, than uh, critical care patients. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what's interesting is, you know, as our healthcare system ramps up and um, becomes larger and larger healthcare systems that push patients through faster and faster, the kind of care in the old-fashioned care and hand-holding um, approach that used to be a part of medicine is really being lost. And so people feel um, like they have unanswered questions. They feel like decisions are not being clearly uh, explained. Uh, they feel that their care, sometimes people feel like they've been launched on the rapids. And what we do is we come in and we put the pieces together and explain why we're doing what we're doing and where the direction is. And really, you know, the other thing that we do quite a bit of is we're we're better at articulating, helping patients and families articulate their goals and providing those in hospice. You know, the other thing I see in most traditional healthcare interactions is that the doctor has an agenda, and the question is, how quickly can I get the patient to align with my agenda? And because, you know, every family is different, every religious background is unique, every culture has different beliefs about death and dying, we slow down the process and spend a lot of time making sure that the patient and the family get what they want. And that's the other thing that's so unique. I think that there's an, a, a tremendous amount of relief that we see that falls over the patient and the family when they really understand what's going on and that they're driving the process. Yes, an inherently very anxiety-ridden one. And relative to the patient-centered, the other phrase used is, as you just intimated, a whole-person care. And that's, I think, one of the uh, goals here. Let me ask you next, um, and this is an issue that dogs the program um, still, even though it's uh, under Medicare, it's a 30-year um, uh, benefit in running, and that is underutilization. Uh, mm -hmm. What's your assessment as to why um, hospice care remains underutilized? Um, you know, the first finger would have to be pointed to physicians who are late in referrals or hesitant to refer patients. You know, we spend a lot of time in hospice talking about hope and that the object of a patient's hope changes as the course of their illness progresses. You know, and it, early on they may hope that the cancer diagnosis is limited and can be treated. And then later on they may hope that their pain could be controlled. And as the cancer progresses, if it does, unfortunately, they start to hope that they'll have a good death without much suffering and that their family will be comfortable. And so a lot of doctors still believe that if you tell the patient that their condition is terminal, uh, they will lose hope. Uh, clearly that's not true, but I think 
The biggest challenge we still find is that um, specialists that are primarily the ones caring for patients with end-stage disease, you know, they're the nephrologist with the end-stage renal patient, the cardiologist with the end-stage heart failure patient, or the oncologist with the end-stage breast cancer patient, they're, they're very reluctant to sit down with the patient and family and say, I'm not sure that we're going to benefit from trying one more intervention or one more drug. So it's still an educational process for most physicians. I think the other piece is that it it is changing significantly, but to accept death is something that's difficult in our culture. And so the word hospice sometimes is a challenging one to even bring up with the patient and the family. And they, they hear hospice and they hear we're going to stop giving you your medications. We're going to put you on a alternate track with less aggressive care. We're going to start taking things away. And one of the things that we work very um, arduously on is to make sure that patients know that they're probably going to actually get more care than they had been getting for their pain and symptom management and more psychological and social support for themselves and their family. So instead of the old doctor who said, we have nothing more to do for you, we, we should send you to hospice. I try to coach doctors to say, you know, what we've tried has not achieved our objectives, but I'd like to add the services of the hospice team. They have an expertise that I think would be helpful. And, and I think we need to start flipping the equation around so that hospice is an additive positive thing. But it's going to take a while. Interesting, interesting. You did mention a good death. So let me ask you again, on your based on your experience, what is a what constitutes a good end of life experience? However ironic that may sound. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that we do is we are good at eliciting the patient and the family's desires, and a good experience is what that patient and family want. So, for example, there are some religious cultures that have a high premium on suffering that suffering is what we're here to do. And um, it may be difficult for us to convince that patient and that family to accept pain medication because that suffering has a certain kind of meaning for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So it may not be pain-free hospice experience. Um, You know, some cultures feel very differently about giving bad news to patients. you know, and if that's a patient or family that we're dealing with, we will try very hard to understand and respect that cultural or religious difference. So um, some people would like all the pain medication that they need so that they're pain-free. Other people would want to reduce the pain medication so that they were more alert and aware. And so really, you know, our job is to work with the patient and the family to understand what it is we have to offer and guide them through the process to accomplish what they want. And the other thing is that over time, as the patients and the family understand how the hospice team works aggressively to achieve those goals, it becomes more of a partnership and they may be more open to things that they weren't open to at the beginning. And we can have some conversations that we couldn't have at the beginning. So it definitely is a process. Hmm. Let me. So let's go to the flip side of the coin and let me ask you, Certainly no program is perfect. What opportunities would you say are there for the program uh, to improve the program or to, say, make less imperfect the program? How might the program be improved? 
Mm-hmm. And let me to ask you about, and this is a long-standing issue in, in end of life for hospice care, and that is the phrases used frequently: upstreaming palliative care. Okay. Well, you know what so impressed me in my early exposure to hospice was the understanding that hospice was one of the more impressive consumer movements in healthcare. It wasn't that doctors came along in 1980 and said, we're not dealing with patients well who have terminal conditions. It was, it was small community groups all over the country that got together and said, this is not how I want my husband treated. And this is not still, what I... Right, and there's still a couple hundred volunteer hospices, yeah. And there are a couple hundred volunteer hospices. So it was patients and families that drove the hospice movement in America, and it still in some ways runs best when it's local and when it could be responsive to individual needs. And so um, so that would be one point. The other point you raised, though, is, is um, and it's an important one for people to understand, what's the difference between hospice and palliative care? So from a hospice perspective, as you said, we focus not on cure but on palliation. Palliation means to ease the burden of suffering. So we may not cure the colon cancer that's unfortunately spread, but we can palliate the pain and discomfort that comes along with that. So hospices provide something called palliative care that's a little bit different than a traditional system that's providing something called curative care. And what's happened over time in the last 25 or 30 years is the hospice field has developed a a really unique expertise in palliative care, pain and symptom management. And what's been fascinating to me is that it used to be that you had to join a hospice, sign on to hospice to get that kind of palliative care. And then people started to say, I'm not sure I want hospice, but I, but I need better pain control. Or their doctor sent us a patient for better pain control. And so what started out as being a hospice expertise has now become something that's becoming really widely integrated in the traditional medical system. So studies show, for example, that cancer patients are more likely to complete their course of recommended cancer treatment if it's aligned from the beginning with a palliative care expert. So we're starting to separate palliative care and hospice. Palliative care is the kind of care that every hospice patient gets, but we're trying we're starting to see the expertise of a palliative care physician put up alongside the expertise of a cardiologist or a rheumatologist or a nephrologist and so for example i see palliative care patients in my practice that don't have a terminal illness and aren't dying but i'm managing their chronic pain so we're finding more and more that palliative care is something that most hospitals and many larger growing hospital chains are finding that it's a service they are curious about. And if they don't have a palliative care program, they're looking into starting one. And with that, you begin to see also how um, palliative care and hospice work together, but aren't necessarily synonymous. So, correct. So the value in, in palliative care as a standalone and complementary to all other mm-hmm. um, health care delivery. Okay, great. Thank you. Helpful. Yeah. Well, the other thing, the other thing is that um, many hospice programs and many hospitals and physicians are finding that if a patient isn't ready for hospice and they don't, they're not ready for the concept and they're not ready for the idea, 
we can give them palliative care that will be helpful for their pain and symptom control. And that over time, if their condition progresses, they've had experience with palliative care, and oftentimes that can be a bridge so that later down the road, if they become sicker and they reassess their decision about hospice, you can then bring those patients onto hospice to get the full benefit of the hospice team and the hospice benefit when originally they wouldn't have felt comfortable signing up for hospice. Right, that we've come to increasingly realize there's a, there, there, it's a false distinction to draw a fine mm-hmm. line between curative and palliative. Right, Great. right, because we, we still do some, some what I call curative interventions. You know, if, Symptom relief, right, and palliative care, yes. Yeah, if a if a woman has a urinary tract infection, we're going to treat it. Mm-hmm. Okay. If it's if it's a simple, you know, infection and a short course of antibiotics are going to be helpful, we're going to go ahead and treat it. And I think that's the other thing that's really changed in the last ten or fifteen years is um, we are doing more and more things in hospice in the world of hospice and palliative care that we would have done in the past. For example, uh, a hospice patient would have come on, and we would have. Um, usually stop their chemotherapy and stop their radiation therapy, determining that those were not effective. Um, now, many patients have oral chemotherapy that doesn't involve them going to the hospital for an IV and isn't as traumatic. Well, some hospice programs will continue that oral chemotherapy, or they'll give a short course of radiation if they think it's really going to be important in terms of pain control. So if you have a metastatic cancer lesion in a bone and that's causing a lot of pain and you're worried about the pain or maybe a fracture, we'll give a short course of radiation now, calling it palliative radiation. Now, we're still not trying to cure that cancer, but if we can prevent a break and treat pain effectively, we'll, we'll provide that short course of palliative radiation. So we've really expanded the range of services that we'll provide under the hospice and palliative care uh, rubric. So you somewhat addressed uh, my uh, next or final question, and that is, uh, like it or not, of course, the Affordable Care Act has caused the uh, healthcare industry to become even more dynamic. Um, so when we talk increasingly about uh, more integrated models of care and, and bundling reimbursement, et cetera, going forward, where do you think uh, hospice fits in, or how will hospice evolve, again, in this new context of the Affordable Care Act and its reforms? Well, it's interesting, and some national hospice programs have really sort of jumped jumped in here. I think when we talk about, and anybody you know who's aware of the changes in the Affordable Care Act, no, we're talking about care transitions. We're talking about continuity of care. We're talking about creating a medical home or a medical interdisciplinary team to take care of a patient. Well, that's that's our area of expertise in the world of hospice. Um, and so what we're finding now is community-based hospice programs are getting phone calls from the local hospital that they've never gotten before. And there's an inquiry about how those two organizations might work well together. So, for example, you know, the heart failure patient that's in and out of the hospital every couple of weeks now becomes a challenge for uh, a hospital because of the frequent readmissions. Mm-hmm. It may be that with better palliative care or a palliative care team at home, 
that patient may not be in and out of the hospital so much. And over time, it may also be possible um, that that person will become eligible or decide to take advantage of hospice, you know, the full hospice benefit and the full hospice range of services. And, you know, once again, we talked about that bridge. So there's a real interest, I think, in um, aligning community-based hospice programs, and most of them are community-based, um, with hospital systems and trying to understand what is the appropriate piece for palliative care in that continuum and what is the appropriate piece for hospice in that continuum. And I think that that's going to really um, help educate a lot of healthcare providers on what hospice and palliative care can offer. You know, that's an excellent point because uh, the criticism is we look at the patient primarily relative to what uh, benefit uh, silo they fit. Now, as you suggest, we're looking at the patient um, and, and primarily thinking about, you know, what is their condition and then bringing in secondarily, you know, the services and expertise, um, uh, not putting the cart in front of the horse. So sorry to say we're already at our time limit. Uh, so I appreciate, again, your time, Bruce, and your comments on uh, hospice care. And with that, I'll say uh, thank you again. Okay. Thank you very much, David.